0: Thank you, and once again, good day to students and teachers of the Word of God. Now, if you've been with us now through the past year and more than a year, actually coming out to nearly two years of lessons, you've arrived at Lesson 88. In the series of lessons in the Theological Seminar of the Air, we've come a long way since our basic studies in biblical theology. Our first 12 broadcasts dealt with lessons about God the Father which came properly under the study of systematic theology, that is, knowledge of God, theos. Our next uh, 44 lessons dealt with the Lord Jesus Christ, and these lessons were called studies in Christology. Our next uh, 16 lessons dealt with uh, the Holy Spirit, the study being properly called pneumatology. We have then six lessons about the Bible, and this is Bibliology, and five or six lessons on man and creation that deal with anthropology. We had eight lessons that dealt with Angelology and Demonology. Then we had about 14 lessons that dealt with what we call Soteriology, or the Doctrines of Salvation. We've now come to the study of Practical Theology. Practical Theology deals with such subjects as consecration, prayer, uh, soul winning, uh, the victorious life, the two natures, the quiet time, and so forth and so on. That is, these are the studies that pre- are preeminently practical. And naturally, these come last because, after all, these scriptures were written primarily not for soul winning, but for doctrine. The emphasis, the left and right-wing emphasis we have in America today is, of course, a false emphasis. The first emphasis is that soul winning is the main thing, which, of course, it is not. Doing right is the main thing. God would do nothing wrong to get you saved and God would do nothing wrong to get anybody else saved. And if you do something wrong to get somebody else saved, you're not doing what's right, and you're not doing the first and main thing, which is doing right. Now, we say this because many of the so-called premillennial, soul-winning, independent fundamentalists today uh, have put the Bible in the secondary place and have exalted their monuments and their ministries above the Word of God. This is a very common thing. Some of the most vicious critics of people like Billy Graham, are right-wing fundamentalists that have made a god out of their church, or their newspaper, or their school. We can spot these idolaters easy when we begin to talk about the authority of the Word of God, because this is always placed in the secondary place. They forget that all Scripture was given in inspiration of God and is profitable for first doctrine. On the other hand, the other end of the spectrum, we have the, the polarity. The teaching that all you have to do is just doctrinal study in the Word of God and let the world go to hell. Now this is wrong. Bob Jones, Singer used to say, Cool head, warm heart. The warm heart has to do with the soul winning and the practical matters. The cool head has to do with the doctrinal correctness. There has to be both. Those on either end of the spectrum, the lunatic fringe or the radical fanatics of fundamentalism, I'll always off on the deep end doctrinally, like the Bullingerites that follow Stam and Baker and Cornelius Stam and O'Hare and Ballinger and uh, the rest of them. And then we have on the other side of the spectrum, the radical fanatical nuts that keep talking about soul winning, soul winning, soul winning, while they're altering your Bible, changing their Bible, using your Bible to build their institutions, denying the authority of your Bible, and lying about the background of your Bible. So we talk about soul winning, we're talking about a preeminently practical thing, and we take it second in our series of studies because after all, the doctrines of the Bible are the main thing according to the Bible. Readers of 1st and 2 Timothy will be careful to notice how the new Bibles have changed the word doctrine and removed it from anywhere from two to ten places in First and Second Timothy. And the reason for this is the modern Christian is sacrificing the authority of the Word of God in order to get an income or build his work or perform his ministry. The Word of God is an afterthought. Nowhere is this more apparent than in the correspondence we have here at the Pensacola Bible Institute sent to us by students from the major fundamental Christian colleges. The majority consensus opinion of these students, with one consent and a full majority, is... That the school they're going to does not believe the King James Bible is the Word of God, although they use it. They do not believe the authorized version of the Holy Bible, although they prefer it. They do not believe it is infallible, although it is reliable. And these schools promote it and use it publicly to get the sucker to pay tuition. When it gets in there, it is corrected almost five times a day and is only publicized in the literature because they prefer it in order to get students. We don't have as yet one statement by one faculty member from any major college in America that says the authorized Holy Bible is the Word of God. And I say that after 28 years in the ministry. We don't have one piece of correspondence from any leader in any fundamental school that says he believes he has a copy in his hand of the infallible final authority for the Christian in all matters of faith and practice. Not one copy. I have copies here on my desk from five leading, outstanding, premillennial, soul-winning, separated schools. Every one of them uses the King James and prefers it without believing it. And I've got the letters here signed by the presidents of these schools or the head of the Bible faculties in these schools, the Bible departments. So we have done properly and correct in giving you lessons on doctrine for the first 86 lessons. Now, in dealing with these other matters, in lesson 88, we're beginning here in our broadcast today, and coming on down through lesson 150, we'll be dealing primarily with practical matters. Proverbs 11, verse 30 says, He that winneth soul is wise. Daniel 12, 3 says the people who turn many to righteousness shall shine as the stars forever, the firmament. In Psalm 126, verse 5 and 6, we read, David, sow in tears shall reap in joy, he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, which, of course, can be likened to the word of God, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheep with him, which can be likened to the soul led to Christ. Now it is true that all three of these soul-winning pastors are found in the Old Testament under the law. However, we can make spiritual application. As we said before, the scriptures were not inspired for soul winning or to help you share the experience of your good love or your good news, and the scriptures were not written for you to share the love of God. That's political poppycock today we have put out international socialists who got into the churches. The scriptures were written primarily for doctrine, 2 Timothy 3.16, according to the Holy Ghost to inspire the scriptures that of the final authority and the purpose of the Scriptures was not Pete Ruckman, or what he thought or what he said, it was what the Holy Spirit said himself about his own work. Second Timothy 3.16 So although we can make spiritual application, we must never forget these three verses are in the Old Testament given to people under the law. Now, few are called to be preachers, but every born-again Christian is called to be a soul winner in the sense he's called to be an individual, personal witness who attempts to win people to Jesus Christ. Preachers and missionaries often get so busy with meetings and classes, they forget the private touch of personal witness and personal soul winning. Soul winning is a definite effort to lead a definite person to accept a definite Savior at a definite time. That is, soul winning is the attempt of a witness to get the person witness to to put their name on the dotted line. The people who led Moody and Spurgeon and Toy and Finney and Billy Graham to Christ are unknown. That is, to the avid Christian, you'd have to look up their names and find Kimball who led Moody to Christ. The name of the Methodist preacher, the independent Methodist preacher who led uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon to Christ is nameless, and nobody knows to this day what his name was. Why didn't he cash him when he led that fish to the Lord? Uh, Billy Graham was saved by a personal worker, led to Christ by a personal worker named Pravat. In a meeting in Charlotte, North Carolina, under Mordecai Ham, And yet you haven't heard Billy Graham mention Mordecai Ham's name for 20 years. Do you know why? Those things are interesting, aren't they? We've got a fundamentalist in America who publishes a weekly Christian newspaper that he brags about as being responsible for revival coming back to America when he's really bragging about the subscriptions he gave out in order to get a place to preach. And that fellow in that newspaper he put out has never put a sermon in there by J. Frank Norris for 30 years. And the men connected with J. Frank Norris and associated with the churches have put up the largest bunch of independent Baptist churches in America the world's ever seen. It's strange, isn't it? I mean, looking at it as a man instead of a preacher... I was a man 27 years before I was a preacher. And very often I look at things from the standpoint of a man instead of a minister. I find ministers sometimes tend to make gods out of their works. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, If I were utterly selfish and had no care for anything but my own happiness, I would choose by might under God to be a soul winner. For never did I know perfect overflowing happiness of the purest, and most ennobling order, till I first heard of one who had sought and found the Savior through my means. That is, a soul winner has great joy. One of the most satisfying things in this world, if not the most satisfying things, after you're saved, is to know that you've led someone to Christ, and they've straightened up their life, and they're living for Christ. That is one of the highest joys a person can have on this earth, and far exceeds any gift given to the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12. The gifted people who brag about gifts, the pseudo-charismatic people who are like uh, clouds that brag about rain when there's nothing but wind and hot air, miss the greatest joy of Christian service. Not one out of ten of them is a soul winner. What they are is what we call proselyters. Their job is to take a man who's already saved and talk him out of his doctrinal position by talking about experiences. This has nothing to do with winning souls. This has to do with perverting converts. The soul-winner is the man who leads an unsaved man to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and no joy in the world is any higher than that because, of course, this is an eternal work that bears eternal fruit. Now, you should be a soul-winner because of the worth of the soul. Christ said it's it's worth more than the whole world. So when you lead a man to Christ, you've already done more than Rockefeller. When you lead a soul to Christ, you've already done more than Bismarck or Kennedy. When you lead a soul to Christ, you've already done at least 10,000 times as much as Martin Luther King ever thought of doing. When you lead a soul to Jesus Christ, you've always accomplished already accomplished more than Abraham Lincoln accomplished in a lifetime. That's something to think about, isn't it? That if a man could gain the whole world, lose his own soul, the prophet would be on the lost side of the ledger. Therefore, if you led a man to Christ and that soul got saved, you've already done more than the Illuminati the Council on Foreign Relations, the Senate, the Congress, and the United Nations. My, what a rare opportunity for a man who has what we call in the higher educational circles a proper sense of value. (laughs) Or they say in philosophy, axiology. Now listen. When you lead a soul to Jesus Christ, you have done more in eternity and time than the entire body of statesmen, senators, ambassadors, premiers, governors, attachés, and nuncios have done for the world in the last two thousand years. So if you want to get in the big time, that's the big time, winning people to Jesus Christ. We ought to win people to Christ because of the fact of hell. If we really believe it's overheaded headed for a lost eternity in a lake of fire, whether it's torture, blackness, anguish, and shame forever, like the Bible says, and torment forever, like the Bible says, we should surely do all our power to persuade men to turn from sin and turn to Jesus Christ. Now when I say this, of course, I'm pointing out a salient truth for the child of God who is saved. If you want to be saved people, all you can talk about is your gifts and your experience. you're demon-possessed. Imagine you going around bragging about your experience and about your gifts with the world going to hell all around you. Imagine that. Imagine you knowing the free pardon of sins by the shed blood of Jesus Christ and all you can talk about is your gifts. Now, what kind of a demon got a hold of you? Suppose you saw a car out there on the highway burning, like they often do, with a woman in it screaming, like it often happens, and a pool of gasoline around there on fire, 20 feet in diameter, and a woman screaming, The children, the children, get the children, get the children. What would you do? Share your experience with the love of God with her? Why, there have been cases like that I just mentioned where grown men had to knock each other down to keep from getting burned to death, going into that pool of gasoline to get the kids out. I have known of cases where a pilot came down hollering May Day and hit a landing strip, and when the emergency units got there and the plane was going up in flames, they could hear that fellow screaming 100 yards off, for God's sake, cut my legs off, cut my legs off, cut my legs off. Because he didn't want to burn to death in the plane. He did burn to death. Nobody could get in the cockpit to cut his legs off. They were caught in the metal under the seat. Now, let me let me ask you something. You Christian people... If you know you were going to hell before you got saved, and know you're now saved from hell, what are you doing to try to keep people out of hell? Going around quoting Acts 2.38? There's nothing in Acts chapter 2 about anybody going to hell. Nobody in Acts chapter 2 even asks what to do to get saved. Now, what kind of a jaded, twisted crackpot are some of you Christian nuts to be going around, all you can do is quote Acts 2.38 and 1 Corinthians 14, while the world is dying and going to hell all around you, and if you're saved, you know that. You know why some of you people don't spend time with the people of Christ? Because you've never been saved from hell, and that's why it isn't real to you. We have a funny kind of a Christianity day where a guy gets up and, gets up and says, I've been born again, and when you put him right down, on a, in, right down in the cockpit and ask him, what he meant by born again, he meant goose pimples, visions, quivers, shivers, hair standing on end, and a desire to talk about crosses. It's a strange situation. Now, if you're saved from hell, you know hell's reality. There may be something in your town stupid enough to think that hell is the grave, but if you're saved, you have better sense. You know what I mean, Jolly Bean? If you're saved, you know that hell is a reality. Now, if you think it's the grave, I'm not talking to you, because people who've been saved from hell know perfectly well they weren't saved from the grave. Paul is in the grave right now, and he was saved from hell. Dwight L. Moody and R.A. Toy are in the grave right now, and they were saved from hell. The sufferings of Christ on the cross for every sinner should inspire you to try to win people to Christ. The emptiness and folly and vanity of this world should make a soul winner out of you. If you found Jesus Christ, you know you found the remedy for your problems that you couldn't find in college. If you found Jesus Christ your Savior, you have a remedy you found that the world couldn't take care of with its science, medicine, philosophy, and other pretty little clowny tricks. That isn't all. The glories of heaven should drive a soul winner to try to get others to get saved because he should remember that he'll be judged at the judgment seat of Christ which we'll talk about in later broadcasts, and they'll be rewarded for his efforts to try to win people to the Savior. Now, if you're going to be a personal worker and try to win people to Jesus Christ, there are a number of things you're going to have to be, qualifications you're going to have to meet. And, of course, none of these have anything to do with the gifts given to the carnal Corinthian church. The most ungifted people in the world for winning souls to Christ are the people that brag about the gifts of the Spirit. They have the lowest baton average in the entire history of the Christian church. As a matter of fact, when we find uh, what the history says about the soul winners in the church, we don't find one major soul winner in the church, in the history of the church, that ever bragged about his gifts or anybody else's gifts. The men who led millions to Christ, Billy Sunday, Dwight L. Moody, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Charles Finney, Peter Cartwright, Sam Jones, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, John Wesley, Never wasted five minutes blubbering and blabbering about charismatic nonsense. They got people saved. Now, if you're going to be a soul winner, first of all, you must be saved yourself and you must be sure of your salvation. The reason why many of the people who brag about charismatic gifts make sorry soul winners is a lot of them are disturbed morning, noon, and night about committing the unpardonable sin. They can never be sure whether they're going to lose it today or tomorrow or lost it the day before yesterday. If you don't know you're saved for certain, you'll never be a soul winner. You'll just be in with the campfire girls and the girl scouts bragging about your feelings and your experiences. You cannot lead a man to Christ if you don't know you have eternal life. That's why? Because you have nothing to offer him. I remember one time a Pentecostal preacher stopped me at the end of a service and spent a good deal of time trying to convince me that uh, if I didn't have what he had, that uh, certain things were wrong. At Bunny I said to him, I said, uh, what are you taking this time out to talk to me for? He said, I want to help you. I said, then I must need help, right? He didn't answer. And I said, tell me something. I said, what do you have that I don't have that would be a help to me? he said, oh, I didn't mean that. Then he put on the humble bit. So you try to, he tried to pretend that he wasn't doing what he said he was doing. <laughs> oh, they're a straight bunch of snakes. if you ever met one, some of the brethren? And I said, uh, what do you profess to have I don't have? He said, well, I wasn't, well, nothing. I didn't profess that. I said, well, I've got something you don't have. Nothing humble about me, you know, brother. I've been accused of a lot of things, but not being a gentleman, that hasn't been one of them. If I take time out to talk to you 30 minutes... Let me tell you something. I'll leave the cards on the table face-up. If I ever take time out to talk to you 30 minutes, it's because I'm convinced that you're short on something and I've got something you need. And if I didn't think that, I wouldn't open my app to you. See, that's the difference. Like I said, I was a man 27 years before I was a preacher. And if I take time out to deal with you, it's because I think you have a need. And if I don't think you do, I won't waste five minutes of your time or one minute of mine. So I told that preacher, I said, I've got some you don't have. He said, what's that? I said, absolute assurance of eternal life without talking in tongues. And I was right. He didn't have that. That is, he needed some help from me and didn't know it. A lot of people are like that these days. All right, the soul winner must be saved. He must know he is saved. Next, he must have a life surrendered to Jesus Christ. You're going to bear an awful lot of shame and reproach and cussing out and mockery if you get out there witnessing for Christ. And if you're not surrendered to Jesus Christ and living the right kind of a life inside and outside, you won't stand it very long. The soul winner must work in a spirit of love and perseverance. He can't be arrogant or overbearing in personal work. Now, when it comes to preaching, you can shut it out hot and hard and clear. When it comes to teaching, you lay it on the line and roll and stop and shoot it out there like an 88. When it comes to personal work, you'll have to lower the tone of your voice and say, Good day, sir. How are you? I wonder if you've got a few minutes. I hope I'm not taking up too much of your time. Uh, if you have just a few minutes, I'd like to show you something in the Scripture. You see, personal work is not the same as preaching. Now, we have many cowards in the pulpit today who have tried to make the approach to personal work their manner in the pulpit. And these people have sold the pulpit down the the river. They've made it impossible for a man to come to a church and hear a rebuke. Preaching is not just sharing the love of God. Preaching and teaching means the whole counsel of God, all the counsel of God. And many times, like Matthew 23 from Jesus or John 9 from Jesus, it is blistering, scathing, negatory denunciation. And many times in First and 2 Timothy, it's name-calling, an open rebuke before them all, Paul says. Personal work is something else. The Christian who deals with souls must have a knowledge of the Bible. He must know how to use the Bible. Many people shy away from personal work because of their ignorance of the Word of God, but ignorance is no excuse. The Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. The soul winner must be a man of prayer, relying on the Lord to convert the sinner. His life must be powerful, and he must be filled with the Holy Spirit, not the sense of bragging about gifts he doesn't have, but have the power of the Holy Spirit to lead people to Jesus Christ. Or as Paul says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. He must have a compassion for lost souls, a passion for the unsaved people. If he does not, he'll work with a dead, mechanical, dispassionate concern, and the individual will respond accordingly. We have what we call a Roman road to salvation, which many times is dished out in a mechanical, computerized fashion, and it produces nothing at all, except a carnal convert or no convert. I knew a man here in Pensacola one time who was a great personal worker who probably led thousands to Christ, but he didn't get enough sleep at night, and he had problems in his family that kept him burdened night and day and kept him from getting sleep and he would often get so sleepy and he told this to me frankly and confided to me confidentially that often he got so tired that he would go to sleep while giving the plan of salvation to somebody sitting on a sofa with him. He sit there and quote the verse and turn to Romans chapter 10 verse 9, 10 and Romans 9, 10 it says Thou shalt believe in thine heart God raised from the dead I shall be saved and go to sleep. Now, obviously, his problem is just not enough sleep. But beware of the formalized, computerized, mechanical method of leading souls to Christ that puts them through like a baloney factory and then puts out these great results of how many decisions you had. You better look out for that stuff. We've got some idea in this generation, we got from somewhere, I don't know where, that a decision for Christ was regeneration. Now, this has been done by taking advantage of the fact that the average Christian will not study his Bible to find out what's doctrinally correct and what is not doctrinally correct. And by doing this, the preachers have gotten away with a kind of a a chicken-livered Christianity whereby standing up and using terminology which the Christians will misread They can get by and put across something the sinner will accept without getting upset about it. Now, for example, the common approach to ministry these days is let Christ come into your life. Every lukewarm, watered-down, Bible-rejecting Christian who hears that thinks that's proper because he's been saved and Christ is already in his body. And what that backslidden Christian never realized is that's the most dangerous thing you could possibly say to an unsaved man. Because Christ is in the life of every devil on the face of this earth. Christ controls the devil and his angels. All power is given to Christ in heaven and earth. Christ controls by his permissive will and authority the activity of every unsaved man in the face of this earth by his permissive will, and he can stop at any time he desires. Therefore, to talk about letting Christ come into your life is to deceive the unsaved man with the consent of the body of Christ. By the same token, the decision for Christ we often hear about is perfectly acceptable to a Christian who has to constantly make decisions, but deciding for Christ is not regeneration, Regeneration doesn't occur till God grants a spiritual new birth, and the new birth is never granted, John 1, chapter 13, until that sinner receives God's Son as his Savior. So what our preachers have done is taken advantage of the fact that the Christians no longer study their Bibles and are no longer concerned with biblical terminology and have taken advantage of this to get by so they don't offend the unsaved man and pass off as good little boys and girls when they're not preaching the truth. Nothing could have helped this movement toward apostasy any better than the new translations, which use wording that's inoffensive to the unsaved man and ambiguous wording which can be interpreted by a Christian to be the truth when it's not. So between the new Bible and the new set of preachers, we have developed a lanolized, leavened, synthesized Christianity, a watered-down, adulterated Christianity that doesn't lay the plan of salvation on the line. It begins with Romans 6.23, where it ought to begin with the white throne judgment and the lake of fire. Because that's the destination of every unsaved man I'm talking to. Revelation, chapter 20. Our time is up on our broadcast today, and we're not through yet with this very important study of soul winning. So next week we'll continue our study, talking about God's way in the soul winning and the procedure and general rules for winning people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Until then, may the Lord bless you and good day.